exciting morning. It's an exciting... Am I on? There we go. It's an exciting morning where we get to gather with eight people who are making public their commitment and their confession to Jesus. And, and it's going to be a morning full of memories for us, but also for them. And, and I don't know about you, but when I look upon my baptism, I look upon it with, with great kind of memory. I look at it as kind of great joy, a time in which I experienced kind of new identity to who I was, to where I was going, to where I've come from. And this morning we celebrate with eight other individuals that are making that trek this morning. And Kevin, thank you. It's also been a meaningful uh, just morning of worship with you, and thank you for being here with us. After our sermon today, instead of a closing song, we are all going to go out, and there'll be a point where I can dismiss parents to pick their kids up a while, but we will all leave, and, and we'll, we'll go outside to the carport and kind of curve to the right and give it a few minutes till we all get out there. We were going to celebrate in that moment to have this time where we celebrate what God, through the work of His Holy Spirit, is doing in the hearts of people. This morning, we talk about, uh, as we talk about baptism, we're talking about a physical response to something God is doing in our hearts. It's something the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts. And so it's very fitting that this morning, as we continue in our series, The Five Investments, that we are going to be talking about how uh, God has called and equipped and wants us to respond and invest with our physical selves. And today is very much a response of the physical self. In this series, The Five Investments, has been looking at the five ways in which Jesus invested everything that he was for the glory of the kingdom of God, right? And this is what this series has been out. In many ways, it's also a look at how God calls us to leverage or use all of these areas of our life, these five ways, for the glory of the kingdom of God. So it's not only something he modeled, but it's something that he desires for us. Now, the first week, we looked at what it means to invest our spiritual lives, and our faith for the glory of the kingdom of God. And that's kind of the starting place. I mean, once we get that lens on and right, the rest begin to make sense. And and last week, we looked at the parable of the dishonest manager, and we looked at how God actually desires and kind of calls us to build relationships that are leveraged around the kingdom, to develop relational equity with those that are around us for the glory of the kingdom of God. Now, we have three remaining investments to look at. We have financial, we have intellectual, and physical. This morning, we begin to look at what it means to uh, have the kingdom at the center of our physical investment, our physical capital. As I pointed out last week, sometimes these five investments uh, are also called the capitals or the equities, but this morning we're going to refer to them as capital and investment. Now, often when we talk about capital and we talk about investment, we only do so through the lens of money, right? I mean, that is the first thing that when we think of wealth, when we think of money, uh, that comes to our mind. We think of finances, we think of budget, we think of money. And far too often, as a result, uh, we seem to judge others' worth or our own worth at times through how much money we have, how budgeted we are, how financially stable we are. We think Jesus is happy as long as he has our hearts, our prayers before the meal, and our tithing. 
Though money is the main lens in which uh, we see investment in capital through, our investment in capital worth is much more to Jesus than just our money. It's much more than just our wise money investments. And, and most of us know the story of the rich young ruler, this, this story where a guy approaches Jesus and says, I want a good life. I want everything. Give me, give me what you got. I'm going to follow you. I want what you have. And Jesus actually responds to him that he needs to rid himself of his financial assets that have become his identity and his worth. Our worth is so much more than our finances. And when we get in a mindset that money is everything, we miss out on the very thing that God wants for us and has modeled for us and what it means to leverage for the kingdom of God. And we've been talking about this through this series at a much deeper look at what are investments and capital. And as we've been looking at this series, we realize that wealth, investment, and capital is much more than just material and financial wealth. Our finances are actually just a small part of who we are as an individual. Now, I'm going to say it again because in the Western world here, money is everything and accomplishment is everything. Our finances are really just a small fraction of who we are as an individual. And even though that's what we've been trained to think of as our worth, a life lived well actually finds everything that we are invested into the glory of the kingdom of God. We have our spiritual capital our relational capital, our physical capital, our intellectual capital, and our financial capital. To experience the good life, we are forced to kind of face this reality that life, when lived well, leverages and finds everything that we are invested into serving the glory of the kingdom of God. Now, in the book Economics, Mike Breen and Ben Sternke talk about this very idea in this way. All these things and more can be considered forms of capital. The world essentially works as a network of relationships in which we invest particularly, particular kinds of capital in particular ways. There are all kinds of ways to slice and dice and recombine and rename these capitals. But Jesus seemed to have a specific way of looking at capital and economics. And as usual, though, he takes beyond our normal ways of thinking and teaches us how life and capital work in the bigger picture of life with God, or as the Bible calls it, the kingdom of God. In all of these five areas that we have to offer, Jesus wants full equity and controlling interest. Jesus wants full equity and controlling interest. Last week we talked about relational equity. We talked about the television show Shark Tank and how there's these kind of investors who want to invest in new projects, but they want to do so where they get the best bang for their buck. They want to control as much as possible as the new company and make the most out of it. And the business owners, most of them don't want to give up too much controlling equity or interest in their life. But how we're to follow Jesus, we are forced to put the kingdom of God at the center of these five areas, just like he did. And to follow Jesus, we are forced to put the kingdom as the center reason for investing in all of these areas, which means that Jesus will get controlling interest and equity, even though we don't like to give up that aspect. Far too often, there's too much of us at the center of what we do, that the Holy Spirit-given view of God's kingdom doesn't have room to take root. 
Jesus taught us to live by kingdom-centric reality. He taught us to do this do the same that he did. In each of these five areas, Jesus wants us to question the center with this question. But first, be concerned about the kingdom, and then all of these other things will be provided to you. Read this passage with me. I think this is an important passage. Be first, but first, be concerned about his kingdom, and then all of these other things will be provided for you. Let's try it again, because I did not hear most participation there. But first, be concerned about his kingdom. And then all of these other things will be provided for you. At the core, Jesus wants to spend, see us spend all that we are with him and for him and in service of his kingdom. For all of us, that's never a full reality by which we can live. There's always a tension for us there. John Wimber often explained it like this. Show me where you spend your time, your money, and your energy, and I'll show you what you worship. This morning, when we talk about physical capital, we're going to be talking about how we spend our time and our energy. Our time and our energy. Physical capital and intellectual capital, which we'll talk about next week, as far as these areas of investment, are harder to explain, to illustrate, and discuss in 20 to 30 minutes than it is with spiritual, relational, and financial capital. But, however, it is no lesser a reality of what God requires of us and from us. We have as much physical capital to offer the kingdom as we do spiritual, relational, financial. Physical capital, as we understand it, is this. Physical capital is related to the amount of time and energy that we have and how wisely we use it to invest for the sake or the glory of the kingdom of God. Now, if you're more of a visual person, you may look at it like this. And and as we'll see this morning, in addition to time and energy, there's also an aspect of talents that gets involved here. And in addition to time and money, often our skills or talents get labeled as what equally makes up our physical capital. And so if you're more visually minded, this may be of help to you. Random House Dictionary looks at what physical capital is from a business standpoint like this. Physical capital is the tools, the machinery, and the computers and other equipment that are needed for the production of goods and services. When we inventory ourselves as individuals, our physical capital, our machinery, that which we we have been born with, the natural innate stuff in us, is what equipment we are born with, which mostly equates to our time, our talents, and our energy. This morning, we are going to look at our physical capital as a kingdom-centric investment through Matthew 25, 14 through 30. This parable is often called the parable of the talents, and it's really one parable that falls in the middle of a series of parables in which Jesus tells them about the value of the glory of God and what it means to value your investment in it. So these, this particular parable falls in a series in which Jesus has just left the temple. His followers are with him. He privately begins to tell them, you know, there's no stone going to be left unturned. And then he begins to tell them these parables of what it means to be invested for the sake of the kingdom of God. This parable is one that we often think of again as in relation to money. We think about it in financial capital. But as I think we see today, Jesus had a lot more in mind. When he told this story, he told it through a familiar lens, but he had something a lot bigger in mind. 
Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work, and he gained five more. And so also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, he dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money. A long time after, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, and I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share with your master's happiness. Now the man with two talents also came, and he said, Master, you you entrusted me with two talents, see, and I gained two more. And his master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man. You harvest where you have not sown. You have gathered where you have not scattered seed. And so I was afraid, and I went out, and I hid your talent in the ground. And see, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, and you're aware that I gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has been given, sorry, for everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In parables, Jesus often uses a singular actual term, a a particular term, to imply a much larger and grander point. In the New Testament, Jesus commonly uses the financial image and illustration to really talk about what it means to be invested in the kingdom of God. Many commentators have pointed out that Jesus talks more about money than anything else. Some have estimated that Jesus actually talks ten times more about money than he does about faith. However, the reality is that Jesus is just never talking about money. He's never just talking about money in the physical sense. And in this passage, money is only a common language, an illustration on how life works. Michael Breen says in his book, in this parable, Jesus uses a story of financial investment to describe a strategy that he conducts in a person's life as he represents the Father. And even as we read through it, you notice the Scripture said that he, they took the talents they were given and they put it to work. The physical aspect that they had to put it to work. They had work to be done. It wasn't just using and playing with money. We begin to see this reality come to life when we analyze just a few of the aspects that are happening in this story. 
Now, first, the word for talent there is actually talentun, and it could be silver or gold. But usually when people think about it, and and if you have the newer NIV, it actually already translates it as a bag of gold. And so it's most commonly understood as gold. Its price was figured out by weight rather than a standard sum of money. And so based on how much it was worth was how much work it took to make it. A talent of gold was roughly a 200-pound nugget of gold. So when the first guy comes, he roughly gets 1,000 pounds of gold. Now, if we look at what 1,000 pounds of gold cost in modern-day money. Now, I don't know about you, but if my master trusted me with that much money, I'd be scared to invest it too, right? That's a lot of money. None of us are kind of carrying that change around in our pocket, I don't think. A talent, by the way, as N.T. Wright says, was a unit of money worth roughly what a laborer could earn in 15 years. So in their time, one talent was worth about 15 years of work. Our modern word talent, in the sense of gifts and skills that an individual processes, is actually derived precisely from this parable. So when we say, man, Angel can really play a cello, he's really talented, That comes from this parable, and we see that if you look it up in a dictionary. For instance, I looked it up in the Random House Dictionary, and in the 2012 edition, it says, Talent, a power of mind or body considered as given to a person for use and improvement. So called from the parable in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. We find that this idea that talent is more than money has actually affected our culture from here on out. Now, when you hear or use the saying, he or she is worth more than their weight in gold, it means that they have used their talents, their energy, and their time in such a way that you have become, they have come to, you've come to value them and find them indispensable. The same idea is most likely derived and also captured in this passage. The weight of worth for talent was about how much effort was put into it. Now, this passage has many layers to it, and depending on what we prioritize, what we look at in it, we come to different conclusions. We draw different arrival spots. And and if we prioritize the parable uh, as a part of a collection of parables about the end times, then we kind of put ourselves as Jesus' audience, and we view heaven as kind of this heavenly exam, uh, and we view earth as sort of this heavenly exam. And if we prioritize that Jesus is talking to his disciples in his private conversation, uh, and we see the story about Israel, then we begin to realize that Israel had failed the exam, that it's not a future exam, that Jesus is talking in the past tense, and Israel was not uh, kind of responsible with the talents and the money that they were given, and so Jesus took it away from them and gave it to those who were outside. We actually see this explained through Luke's version of this story about the ten minions. Now, if we prioritize the money and the numbers aspect of this passage, we think Jesus promises reward for our behavior, for our wisdom, for our effort. But if we prioritize the guy who didn't invest, as we normally do, we talk about the judgment of this passage and not the intent of this passage. Usually when we talk about this passage, we focus on that one lazy guy and how he didn't get it, and we throw, you know, he needs to be thrown out, and he was just so lazy, and none of us want to be like him. 
This morning, I want us to prioritize the role of the father or the master in this kingdom, in this passage. In Matthew 25, 14, we read, Again, it'll be like a man going on a journey who has called his servants and entrusted his property to them. Now, the word for property here actually speaks about much more than just one's financial possessions or what's in one's hand. It, it literally means that whatever they had to give, they gave. Everything that they were, they passed on. Now, neither you or I are walking around with that kind of money in our hand, so it's obvious that Jesus wasn't either. So what was Jesus trying to say about how this master gave his servants what he had in hand? What is it that Jesus is saying the property of the Father was that was given to us? For that, we look at his followers and how they go on to understand this reality when they write their churches. So the people that Jesus is talking with, the actual audience, not us, this isn't a heavenly exam, as he's talking to his disciples, how did they understand this passage? Well, time and time again, as they write their churches about this same reality, we see them refer to physical capital, how much time and energy and effort and talents are put forth through something. Peter writes, as each has received a gift, same word, use it to serve one another, a good steward of God's various grace, your time, your energy, and your talents. It also includes the gift of the kingdom of God in the here and the now and the yet to come with the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to the church in Rome, have gifts that differ according to the grace. We each have gifts that kind of differ according to the grace given to us, and let us use them. In Ephesians, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared us in advance to do. Paul, to the church in Corinth, there are different kinds of service. Depending on your translation, there are different gifts, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, in everyone, it is the same God at work. And we could go on and on. This is how they understood what it means to leverage themselves for the kingdom. And the more I read ideas throughout the New Testament of what Jesus' followers explain and say are a gift from God to be used physically in a form of effort, we find six realities. You have your energy. You have your time. You have your talents. You have the gifts of the kingdom of God. You have your spiritual gifts, which the Holy Spirit gives to you. And you also have your actual physical presence, your place or your privilege. And that's the one we tend not to think of. Though, this week, as I asked people, what do you think your physical uh, capital is? They all answered it in a physical kind of way, right? Like, haven't you seen me? I'm perfectly physical capital, right? We tend not to think that physical and capital includes our place, our presence, but also our privilege, So what we've been born with, we've been born in America, we've been born uh, with certain race privilege, all those things play into what the New Testament calls a gift. In this parable, we see that the servants are actually given equally according to their ability. Now the reality that's present in these verses read just like this as well. The verses we just read read very similar. His grace has given us a physical capital. That's according to our ability. Each of us has a different capacity, so what he gives us looks different. And likewise, each one of us are on a different place of the journey and can't handle as much as someone else might be. 
So maybe the first servant who, who got more money was around longer. It doesn't mean that he was more favored than the other servant. It just means he was kind of around longer. He had a bigger capacity. It's not a plane of favorites. Each one of us has a different ability, different capacities, but the same responsibility. Interesting enough, the word for ability in this passage, in Matthew 25, 15, is dumas. Every other time that this word is used throughout the New Testament, it talks about the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. There is no other time that it's used where it is not used to describe the gift of the Holy Spirit that moves violently in this world with power, with, with presence. The Father gives us our physical capital. These areas. He gives us this physical capital, which is his property to begin with, for the dynamic and energetic breaking through of the kingdom with the Holy Spirit. Now the first servant who was given more doubles his money. That's impressive. His master replies, well done, good and faithful servant. However, the more physical capital that you are given, there is actually greater responsibility. And because of the privilege of having greater uh, kind of capital, it's actually easier to make more money, right? It's easier to turn $100 into $200 than it is to turn $1 into $100. It's easier to achieve and accomplish. However, the second service also doubled his money, even though he had less to start out with. And both times the, servant responds, the master responds to the servant the same way. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, we tend to skip over this last part of the parable to talk about the bad guy. Listen here about the joy that we see coming from the master. The word for happiness there, or joy, depending on what your, your passage says, actually means overflowing joy and gladness. I don't want to be motivated by my uh, physical capital investment to not be the bad guy. I want to be motivated to invest my physical capital because I want to see this kind of joy and happiness and love in the Father's favor. When we make us the central audience to this passage, and this passage, an end-time passage, we neglect that there's also favor to be joyed in the here and now. Come and share your master's happiness. I have more for you. I will put you in charge of many things. This is talking much more than just the reality of when we get to heaven. If we are faithful with what he's given us and the way we invest our physical capital, there's more for us. Listen to Jesus' declaration at the end of this passage. For everyone who has been given more, for everyone who has been given more, and he will have an abundance. For everyone who has been given more will have an abundance. The word for abundance there, if you would translate it literally, means superabound. It's ginormous. The abundance that awaits for those who are going to be faithful with investing their physical capital for the sake of the kingdom and will find that everything that gets added to them is ginormous. There's nothing else like it. Now, if you are being baptized, I'm going to dismiss you at this time. And parents, uh, two to three-year-olds, you can pick them up downstairs in room 18. And in the fellowship hall, you'll find everyone four and above. And so if you want to uh, go and get your kids, we are coming to an end here. In this passage, our heavenly father is the master and we are his slave. He wants everything that we are. He wants all five of these capitals invested. He wants all those things fully kingdom-centric. 
God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our meal prayers or even our Sundays. He wants our time. He wants our energy. He wants our talents. He wants our spiritual gifts. He wants our living in the kingdom. He wants our physical presence. He wants our place. He wants our privilege. Now, in our physical capital, Jesus wants us to be concerned with the kingdom. To Jesus, not investing your physical capital is actually what makes you the villain. God desires to bless the whole world, and he does this through investing capital in his people, but he expects a return on his capital. This week, as we, as we go into it, how is God asking you to invest your physical capital, your time, your energy, your talents, your privilege, your spiritual gifts? How is God saying, I have given you these things. It is your job to take them with effort and turn them into more. And if you're faithful with that, I will give you more. I will add more things about it. But at the center of those things, your energy, your talents, your privilege, your spiritual gifts, I want to find my kingdom-centric. I love how Paul teaches on this reality to the church in Ephesus. He says, so be careful how you live. And I leave this as our challenge. So be careful how you live. Don't live like ignorant people. Now, the definition of ignorant is to know the truth, but to ignore it anyway. But be wise people. Make good use of every opportunity you have. Opportunity plays into physical capital, because these are evil days. Don't be fools then, but try to find out what the Lord wants you to do. An effort to find our physical capital. Sometimes we have to remember where our physical capital gets charged. And we look at John 15, we see this kind of pendulum swing where Jesus says, rest in me, I am the vine, you are a branch. Right? We have to find ourselves this week resting as a branch on the vine, in a way in which our physical capital can be recharged and renewed and realigned to a kingdom-centric reality. This morning, we've gathered to celebrate a very physical response of eight individuals as they have chosen to make public their confession and their commitment to follow Jesus. And as part of that celebration, we are actually going in a minute to walk outside together and gather near the carport to celebrate the baptism of Larry Myers, Hannah Kilheffer, Kimberly Bogart, Tim Rudy, Amber Shank, Haley Shank, Alyssa DeCubulus, and Kayla Hess. As we move into that space, we'll give it a few minutes to everyone get around there. Uh, all, five, all eight of these people have been chosen to be baptized by submersion. And when we look at this in the early church, it is a very celebratory event. And so as we move into that space, give it the honor it's due. But come with celebration. This is an, a response to what God is doing in the hearts of his people. So, Lord, we gather before you. We ask that as we move into this next space, you give us joy and happiness and abundance in this space. And even more than that, Lord, we ask that it's a memorable time for those who are being baptized. And we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit to come, just like it did in the baptisms of old, so that we will grow in wisdom and presence and understanding of who you are, and it will stick with us to the end of our days. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to join me outside in the next few minutes.